do a little parenting, so. Uh, oh, does anybody need a Bible tonight? Anybody need a Bible? Anybody bring a Bible with me? Kathy, that's your boy. Let me pray again. That would help me. If, if it, whether it helps you or not, it'll help me. Lord, again, we thank you. And we ask that you uh, clear our minds and help us to focus and concentrate and study through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of the world's architectural treasures are temples and churches and mosques. For example, there's England's Westminster Abbey. There's St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The Egyptian pyramids, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. There's India's Taj Mahal. All these are religious buildings. You know, an often overlooked proof about man's nature as a worshiper is the fact that he has reserved his most ingenious expressions of artistry and creativity and engineering for his places of worship. Temples are usually elaborate structures, and yet the world's highest and holiest house of worship no longer stands. In fact, it never stood in one place for very long. Believe it or not, it was a tent. In the epic movie, The Ten Commandments, producer Cecil B. DeMille, he shows Moses descending from Mount Sinai holding two stone tablets in one hand, but that's only partially correct. Tonight's chapters teach us that under one arm he held two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, but on the, under the other arm he must have been holding a set of architectural drawings, a roll of blueprints, for he was also given on that mountain plans for a tent and its special furnishings. This holy tent was called the tabernacle. And it became the one place on earth in the Old Testament where God agreed to meet with His people. And for the next 500 years, the tabernacle will serve as the focal point for Israel's worship and for their national life. Chapter 25 begins. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Notice the key whenever anyone gives an offering to God. It needs to be given willingly and it needs to come from where? From the heart. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 tells us the same. God loves a cheerful giver. Rather than give reluctantly or begrudgingly, God would rather you not give it all. An offering that blesses God comes from a joyful and from a thankful heart. Verse 3 tells us, And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. The ephod and the breastplate were priestly attire, and we'll discuss that later. But the rest of these materials were used in the tabernacle, in this tent. All total, the tabernacle and its furniture consisted of 2,200 pounds of gold, 7,500 pounds of silver, and 5,300 pounds of bronze. That's a total weight of 19,000 pounds with just the metals. And the cost of those materials at today's prices would have been at, very, at the very least $15 million. In verse 8, God says to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now compared to most cathedrals and tabernacles and tents and so forth, this tent was pretty tiny. Its dimensions were just 15 foot by 45 foot. That's a mere 675 square feet. The tabernacle's holy place, that inner part of the tabernacle, was about the size of the brook, believe it or not. About as long as the brook and about 10 foot narrower than the brook. 
Its cost per square foot would probably make it the most expensive building ever constructed. Now, the courtyard that surrounded this tent was sectored off by curtains. And the entire compound, tent and courtyard, was about 150 feet by 75 feet, about half a football field. And the tabernacle was covered with badger skins. Understand, badger skins are not mink. They aren't pretty, fluffy pelts. They're rough. They're dark. And though this tent was full of treasure from the outside, it looked ugly and it looked rough and it looked insignificant. But though the tabernacle was not impressive in terms of size and appearance, what did make it stand out, of course, was its occupant. For it was God's throne on the earth. In verse 9, God says to Moses, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, Moses, don't freelance. God has exact specs for every detail in the tabernacle. Every pole, every socket was carefully engineered. Every facet of the tabernacle was there for a reason. And here's the point. The tabernacle was actually an earthly replica of heavenly realities. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 tells us that the tent God had Moses build was the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, the tabernacle was actually a small-scale model of heaven itself. You know, a common question that gets asked often is, what does heaven look like? Well, we get a glimpse of heaven by studying the Old Testament tabernacle. When we get to Revelation and when we're given a glimpse of heaven itself, we're going to find the same furniture in heaven that we find in the tabernacle. There will be an ark. There's going to be an altar of incense, the laver, the golden lampstand. We see the originals in Revelation of what the tabernacle suggested in type. Now how Moses was actually shown this heavenly pattern is a matter of great speculation among the rabbis. There is a passage in the Talmud that comments an ark of fire and a table of fire and a candlestick of fire came down from heaven. These Moses saw and reproduced. Imagine that. Some say that the angel Gabriel appeared to Moses on the mountain wearing a carpenter's apron and holding models in his hand of the tabernacle furniture. How he was shown these things, we don't know. But wow, what he saw was a heavy revy, a real revelation. Now, as if the tabernacle were not important enough, there's a verse in the New Testament that gives it even greater significance. John chapter 1, verse 14. Write that down and read it later. John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That talks about Jesus. And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I like the amplified version of it. It translates it, The Word, or Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was revealed on earth in the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, God's glory is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The tent that God had Moses construct is in reality a picture of Jesus. It's a portrait of His sacrificial work. And every detail of its appearance and its construction and its ministry actually speaks to us of Jesus. If you want to get to know Jesus, study the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, I love to study the tabernacle because when I do, it's a priority adjustment. You know, we tend to major on the minors and minor on the majors. We major on what God thinks is trivial, and, and we often uh, think it, what's trivial is what God thinks is really important. The tabernacle is a great example of that. One estimate suggests that 10% of the entire Bible is devoted to the tabernacle. That's a big chunk. 10% of the entire Bible is devoted to the tabernacle. And yet, how often do we study it? How 
often do we try to delve into it and grasp its meaning. You know, we have just two chapters on creation. But have a creation seminar and the house will be packed. Whereas we have a couple of dozen chapters on the tabernacle. It's priests, it's sacrifices, it's service. We admire the power of creation. But the work that heaven values are God's acts of redemption. And nowhere do we see those clearer than in the tabernacle. Well, in the blueprints that God gave to Moses, he begins with the holiest item in the tabernacle, a throne over which the glory of God hovered. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 10. And they shall make an ark. An ark was a box or a basket of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, since a cubit was roughly 18 inches, remember that it was the length from the king's elbow to the tip of the king's hand, and that was, for the most part, about 18 inches. The ark would have been a box then that measured 45 inches long by 27 inches wide by 27 inches high. The ark was a rectangular chest approximately 4 foot long by 2 foot high by 2 foot deep. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around it. In other words, the ark was made of two materials. It was made of gold. It was made of wood. And it represented the twofold nature of Jesus. Jesus is gold. He is divine. You know, He is God Himself, but He's also wood. For He is human and humble. Every tabernacle detail will point to us of Jesus. Now you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. In other words, the ark had no handles. It was too holy to be touched by human hands. And thus the ark was transported by poles that slid through rings that were on the four corners of the ark. In other words, it was handled indirectly. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 6, a story is told of a man named Uzzah who reached out and touched the ark of God. And when he did, God struck him dead. To be politically correct, you had to move the ark with poles. And Uzzah reached out and put his hands on the ark And God showed him just how holy it was. Verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. According to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4, God actually placed three things in the ark. He placed the two stone tablets on which he wrote the Ten Commandments. He placed a jar of manna. Wouldn't that be great to discover today? And then he possessed Aaron's rod. You remember the item that represented Aaron's authority to be a priest. God had the rod, you know, Aaron's rod that budded. And God pointed to that and said, you're my priest. You know, this bud's for you. You And all these items speak to us of Jesus. For he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the bread of life that meets all our needs. The manna. And He is our great high priest. He is the one who has authority to go before God on our behalf. Well, verse 17 says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. This was the ark's lid. And it was made of pure gold. And its significance is revealed in its name. The mercy seat. Now here's the picture. Above this lid hovered the holiness of God. Under this lid sat the demands of the law. Those two stone tablets. The holiness of God demands obedience to the law. And yet who has fully obeyed the law? Have you? I haven't. I've broken the law. 
Reminds me of a prayer. I pray often, dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, haven't been nasty, haven't been grumpy, haven't been selfish, haven't been overindulgent. I'm thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed and start my day. And from then on, I need a lot more help. Amen. We're all guilty of violating God's righteous laws and standards. And we're deserving of judgment. But between God's holiness and God's law, there was a place of mercy. There was this golden lid. At the mercy seat, the priest came once a year and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. And that blood-stained mercy seat was the place where God's holiness was satisfied and where man's forgiveness was won. That mercy seat provided God and us a resting place. In essence, it put a lid on the law, on its condemnation. And today, Jesus is our mercy seat. This is why 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 calls Jesus our propitiation. That word literally means to satisfy or to placate. And it comes from the Hebrew word kippureth or mercy seat. Jesus has put a lid on the law for us. He has ended any condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is now the place where God's holiness can be satisfied and man's sin can be forgiven. He is now the place where we can know God and where we can receive mercy. He is our mercy seat. Also notice the dimensions of the mercy seat indicate it perfectly fit on top of the ark. There was no overhang. For no one outside of Christ can be saved. You have to be in Christ. And neither was there any part of the ark that wasn't covered by the mercy seat. Which means those who are in Christ Jesus are saved fully and completely. Even the lip around the ark that held the mercy seat secure speaks of our security in Christ. That nothing can jar us loose or separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting there is one dimension of the mercy seat that's not given to it. And that's its thickness. As far as we know it could have been three miles thick. No limit is actually given to us. And I believe that's because God wants us to know there is no limit to the grace and to the mercy and to the forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 18 tells us, And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. Now cherubim, remember, are a type of angel. When John sees into heaven in Revelation chapter 4, he sees the cherubim hovering above God's throne. Psalm 80 verse 1 refers to God as you who dwell between the cherubim. Apparently in heaven there are actually angels hovering over and watching over God's throne. And from the ark we glean that there are at least two because there were two cherubim on either end of the ark. Some people believe that at one time there were three cherubim that covered the ark. But one of them, Lucifer, sinned and fell from heaven. And no longer occupies that important post. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. What encouraging words. There God says, I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. That's what he says to us who are in Christ. Trust Christ. Trust Jesus. And I will meet with you. And I will speak with you. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. The ark was God's seat in the tabernacle. And apparently it is a small scale model of his throne in heaven. There are prophecy watchers today who believe that the rediscovery for the ark of the ark will be the catalyst for the Jews to rebuild their temple 
and begin a lot of the end times events recorded in Scripture. And there are a number of interesting theories on the ark's location today. Believe it or not, there are some real-life raiders of the lost ark who are at work trying to discover it. Some people think Jeremiah hid the ark in the mountains of Moab. And there have been expeditions launched to the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea in search of the ark. Other scholars believe that the ark is being kept in a monastery in Ethiopia. And we could go into all kinds of things about that. The former rabbi of the Western Wall in Jerusalem, Yehuda Getz, says that he actually saw the Ark of the Covenant in one of the tunnels that run under the Temple Mount. Several years ago, a researcher by the name of Ron Wyatt claimed to have seen the Ark in a tunnel that ran under Golgotha, north of the Temple Mount. He believes that it's now under the mountain where Jesus was crucified so that when the blood that dripped from Jesus' side hit the ground, it ran through the crevices above that cavern and trickled down through those crevices and landed on the mercy seat of the ark that was hidden under the Mount of Golgotha, which is a very interesting theory. That, that, would, be, that would be pretty mind-blowing, that the blood of Christ was actually applied to the mercy seat. Whether or not the ark that Moses made is ever discovered, we, we don't know. But there is a more important ark accessible to us today. The real ark is God's throne in heaven. And in Christ Jesus, we are encouraged to approach it on a daily basis. Hebrews 4 verse 16 tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The next piece of furniture that Moses is to make for the tabernacle is the table of showbread. Verse 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Three feet long by one and a half feet wide by two and a quarter feet high. And you shall overlay it with gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. There's a little lip that'll be around the top of the table that keep the bread from sliding off. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. The table of showbread was transported like the ark. It was carried on golden poles. Verse 29. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. How's that for a china set? And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Now this word showbread literally means bread of faces. Or presence bread would be another way to translate it. This was holy bread because it was eaten before the face of God in the tabernacle, in the very presence of God. And the showbread spoke of fellowship with God. In ancient times, whenever two people sat down and they broke bread together, they, they broke off of the same loaf and therefore they were becoming one with each other. And it spoke of fellowship. Leviticus 24 tells us that 12 loaves sat on this table, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And once a week the bread was replaced and the priests would then eat the old bread. At the ark, the blood was applied and our sin was covered. But the point of forgiveness is fellowship, is it not? I mean, our sin is cleansed for a reason. Not just so you can walk around squeaky clean. God doesn't just clean you up so He can sit you on His mantle and people admire you. No, the point of cleansing is for fellowship. To get to know God. To spend time in His presence. And the showbread spoke of that fellowship that we can have with God. It's interesting that Jesus called Himself the bread of life. He has become our showbread. The bread of presence. And through Him we can become aware of God's presence in our lives. And through Him we're invited to the table to receive God's nourishment, His strength and His sustenance. Jesus is our daily bread. Well next is the lampstand 
or the menorah as the Hebrews called it, since the tabernacle was covered with animal skins, the only light that came from within the tabernacle came from this lampstand, this menorah. Verse 31. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece, and six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. The trunk was one branch, and there were three branches coming out on either side, which made for a total of seven bowls sitting on top of the branches. Seven prom lamp, lamp stand. And it's interesting, no dimensions are given of the menorah. So we don't really know what size it was. When John looks into heaven in Revelation, he also sees a seven-branch lampstand. In Revelation 4, verse 5, he says, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And of course, the Holy Spirit is not literally seven different spirits. He's one person, one spirit. But He is revealed in seven ways. Isaiah 11 refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He has seven names. Verse 33. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch. And the almond was the first tree to blossom in the springtime. It speaks of resurrection. With an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and so for the six branches that come out of lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. That's a total of 22 bowls, seven knobs, and seven flowers. And the knobs and the flowers were ornamental, while the bowls held the oil that was burned and generated the light. Remember, every detail of the tabernacle spoke of who? Spoke of Jesus. And the menorah is no exception. You remember, Jesus said not only that he was the bread of life, he also called himself the light of the world. And not just the light, but while on earth, Jesus was the only light of the world. And of course, in the tabernacle, there was only one source of light, and that was that menorah. And notice the lampstand was made out of hammered gold. Jesus also was certainly hammered, wasn't he? He was hammered and nailed to the cross. Nails were hammered into his hands and into his feet. He was rejected on earth. He is no longer visible, but he still shines in heaven's tabernacle. And he shines in the hearts of those who walk in the power of the Spirit. Well, verse 36 tells us, Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 1, John sees seven lampstands in heaven, which represent the seven churches. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he called his church the light of the world. He was the light of the world while He was here. Today, we are the light of the world. And we need to be shining the love and the truth of God into this dark world. Verse 39 tells us that the lampstand shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. Now, a talent was a measurement that equaled to 100 pounds. And so a talent of gold, 100 pounds of gold, was set apart for the lampstand and for its utensils. A hundred pounds of gold at $400 an ounce would make the lampstand worth today about $640,000. Be an expensive piece of furniture. 
There's one more piece of furniture in the holy place, the altar of incense. And it sat just in front of the veil that entered the holy of holies. But we don't get to that until we get to chapter 30. Verse 40 sums up God's instructions to Moses. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now chapter 26 describes three courts of the tabernacle. An outer court, an inner court, which was called the holy place, and an innermost court, which was known as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies occupied the Ark of the Covenant, possessed the Ark of the Covenant, over which the glory of God actually shone. God starts here the construction of the holy place. He talks about the tent, the frame, and the series of coverings that went over the holy place. The blueprints work their way out from the inside out. He begins, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. In other words, you go into the holy place, go into the tabernacle, and there you look up and you see these curtains with these embroidered angels on them. You see angels all around you, which I got a feeling is what we'll see when we get to heaven. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, that's 42 feet, and the width of each cubit, four foot, or four cubits, which was six feet. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Together these drapes would be 42 foot by 60 foot. Verse 4 describes how these colorful linens were connected. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage, or the corner of one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And by the time you get through, you'll be a little loopy. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Notice the lesson here. There were many parts, but there was just one tent. And isn't that true of the body of Christ today? That we are many members, but we're really just one body in Christ Jesus. Well, this colorful linen curtain was the innermost layer on the holy place. But on top of that went three more layers. First of goat's hair, second of ram skin, and third of badger skin. Verse 7, You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent, over the tabernacle. Goat's hair was black and coarse. It had the appearance of felt. And so the colorful linen was covered by a dark, ugly coat of goat's hair. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, 45 feet. And the width of each curtain, 4 cubits or 6 feet. And the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. Now, the second layer was just a little larger than the linen lining. All 11 curtains together totaled 45 feet by 65 feet. It kind of overlapped the linen underlining. Verse 9. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The clasps that held the linen together were made of gold. And these clasps for the outer curtain were made of bronze. Now the remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent, you shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. These outer curtains will have a little bit of overlap in order to protect the tabernacle. Now verse 14. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent. And ram skin looked like sort of fine leather. So you've got this red leather on top of this felt-looking goat's hair. 
on top of these beautiful linen garments embroidered with angels. It's interesting, according to Ezekiel, wait a minute, he goes on, and a covering of badger skins above that, and then on top of it all, there were these badger skins. And badger skins were ugly and dark and rough. They were durable, though, and they were waterproof. And that's one reason why they were over the top of it all. It's interesting, according to Ezekiel 16, verse 10, badger skin was used for sandals. That's how tough it was. It's also interesting that the word translated badger here may refer to porpoise skins. They're close to the sea at this point. We're not sure if that's true. The next few verses describe the frame on which these curtains rested. Verse 15. And of the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits, or fifteen feet, shall be the length of a board. And a cubit and a half, two and a quarter foot, shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And the word tenons literally means hands. They were the connectors. And so apparently these gold-plated boards were sort of like tongue-and-groove panels that fit together. Verse 18, And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. Notice the boards sit on sockets of silver. And throughout the Bible, silver speaks of redemption. That's very important. In the Old Testament, the redemption price was always paid with silver. And thus, it's no surprise to see the tabernacle actually sitting on a foundation of silver. Verse 20. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards, and there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards, And you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each board. The long sides of the holy place consisted of 20 boards each, And since the tabernacle always faced east, the west side was the back, and it consisted of six boards and two corner boards. Verse 26, And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. These bars provided the horizontal support for the sideboards. Now the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. I hope you're not bored with this. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the boards, and overlay the bars with gold. Apparently these bars ran the length of the tabernacle side, turning the boards into a wall, making them sturdy. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. Now let's sort of sum things up at this point. The inner court, or the holy place, was rectangular, about the size of the brook. It was 15 feet wide by 45 feet long by 15 feet high. We haven't mentioned it yet, but its floor was dirt which reminded the people of Israel that this world was not their home. For in the tabernacle, all of the beauty was above. It was over you. It was above you. There was no reason to ever look down in the tabernacle. The ceiling consisted of four layers. Linen, then covered by goat's hair, then covered by ram skin, then covered by badger pelts. And the walls were made of wooden panels overlaid with gold. When you approached the tabernacle from the outside, it appeared ugly and dark and unimpressive. But from the inside of the tabernacle, oh, it was gorgeous and colorful and beautiful. 
the angels embroidered in the blue and purple and scarlet linen. It was a kaleidoscope of color and art and gold. And remember, the holy place was a picture of Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 2 teaches us that Jesus, when he came, he, was, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing physically attractive about the appearance of Jesus. Now, you know, I think if you'd met Jesus, he looked like an ordinary guy. But on the inside, oh, he was beautiful. He was divine. He had an attractiveness that, that had to do with his purity. It had to do with the goldenness of his character. And you know, the same should be true of those who follow Jesus. On the outside, we may be less than impressive. You may just be an ordinary guy. But on the inside, spiritually speaking, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've been made fit for the very presence of God. And that's why you can't size us up by taking our measurements. Folks look at you, they look at me, they see nothing special. But they don't see who we are in Christ. I am God's work of art. You are God's work of art. And on the inside, He's making something beautiful and priceless in each of us. Well, the doors in the tabernacle are described next. Verse 31. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Notice God is not against art. He commands art for the tabernacle. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. Now, 30 feet into the holy place, Moses hangs this veil. It separated the holy place from the innermost court, which would then become a 15 by 15 by 15 cube, which was called the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all sanctums. It was where the ark sat in the presence of God hovered. Verse 34. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table, the table of showbread, and the lampstand across from it on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the tabernacle on the north, or put the table on the north side. And remember, the, the, the tabernacle always looked east. So inside the Holy of Holies, you saw the ark while outside you saw the lampstand, the table of showbread, and they were separated by this veil. Only the high priest, we'll learn this later, could enter the Holy of Holies, could go into the presence of God, and then he could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. That veil stood as a separation between God and man. The problem is our sin, isn't it? Sin separates us from God. And that veil represented that separation that exists. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus died, Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 tells us that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus atoned for our sin. He abolished this limited access between us and God. He opened the door into God's holiest and in Christ, we can now come boldly to the throne of grace. And we can live in God's presence. It's also interesting, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, the veil is also representative of the body of Jesus. And the only way that we can come to God is to come through the torn and ripped flesh, the body of Jesus that was broken for us. Verse 36 describes the door that led from the outer court into the holy place. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Now, chapter 27 takes us into the outer court of the tabernacle. You shall make an altar of acacia wood the Hebrew word translated altar means killing place. 
And thus, this was to be the place where the sacrifices were slain and offered to God. This altar was to be five cubits long, or seven and a half feet, and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, or four and a half feet. And over the next 500 years, millions of animals are going to die on this altar. And each time they die, they all are going to foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice. For our killing place is no longer this altar. God's killing place today is the cross of Calvary. For that is where Jesus, the Lamb of God, was killed and sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. He says, Now you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You could tie the sacrifice to these horns that were on these four corners to kind of keep it in place. You know, as it barbecued. And you shall overlay it with bronze. Throughout the Bible, bronze speaks of God's judgment. And it was here on the altar that the sacrifice was made. That Israel's sin was judged. The wooden altar was also plated with bronze so it could withstand the tremendous heat that was necessary to burn the sacrifices. And so, this brazen altar was the equivalent of a seven and a half foot square Four and a half foot tall barbecue pit that traveled in the outer court of this tent. Verse 3. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, and its shovels and its basins, and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it, is, it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. Again, as I've shown you, Moses, no freelancing here. Make it exactly according to the specs that I've given you. Verse 9 addresses the fence that lined the outer court. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long on one side, 150 feet. That's half of a football field. And its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Apparently a linen fence was hung from 20 posts down the sides of this, this outer curtain. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits or 75 feet with their ten pillars and their ten sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be fifty cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, or twenty-two and a half feet, with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars or their three sockets, which meant that on the east side of the court there was a thirty-foot opening in this tabernacle. That was the gate through which you would enter from the camp of Israel into the courtyard of the tabernacle. Verse 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, or 30 feet, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits, or 7.5 feet tall, made of fine woven thread and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Approach the tabernacle, and you would see a white fence made of linen with posts, and brass sockets and silver bands. 
The tents of Israel camped around the tabernacle were all made of dark goat's hair. And thus the fence surrounding the tabernacle was sparkling white. And it made for quite a contrast. Here's this white fence right in the middle of all these dark and rough tents. These dingy brown tents. This white fence spoke of God's righteousness. And it remained a constant reminder to the people of how their sin had affected them and how desperately they needed God's purity. It's also vital to note that there was only one door to the tabernacle. And likewise, there is only one way to God. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the door. And it's also interesting to note that this one door was 30 feet wide. Now, if you've got a fence at home, you've probably got a gate. But I doubt if it's 30 feet wide. The wide gate to me conveys that there is plenty of room for all to enter. That everyone is invited to come to Christ and come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And I think it's suggestive that the entrance into the tabernacle was on the east side of the camp. For that is where the tribe of Judah camped. So in other words, in order to pass into the tabernacle, you had to come through the tribe of Judah. And it's no coincidence that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Well, verse 20 tells us, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. He's talking about the fuel to burn in the golden menorah that will light the holy place. And in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. And that's where we'll wrap it up tonight. Now, we've studied about this tonight. And admittedly, this is a little hard sledding for us, is it not? To try to put it together, to try to imagine it in our minds, what we're reading about. Well, they've done a great job down in Orlando doing a replica and doing kind of a mock-up of what this must have looked like. And next week, we're going to show the video and, and the fellow's going to walk you through their replica of the tabernacle. It's very fascinating. A lot of what we study tonight will be rehearsed next week, but you'll get to see it. And you'll get to see the application uh, firsthand and, and visibly. So make sure you're back here tonight. And, and for those of us who are going to Israel, I don't want to leave you out either. Because one of the things I insisted that we do is we're going to go to the tabernacle replica in Almog, which is just north of the Dead Sea, out in the wilderness there. They've put together a replica of the tabernacle right there in the Judean wilderness. And so we're going to visit that while you guys are watching the video. Sorry about that. But we're actually going to visit the, the tabernacle they have there in, in Judea. So 